Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. Please turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 8. Zechariah 8 is uh, to the left of Matthew, two books. Get to Matthew, turn left twice. Zechariah 8 is where I want to start this morning. What a joy to be with you. The Lord is doing wonderful things here. We do have the uh, right hand of fellowship that will come up at the end of our service today. And we'll welcome in new members. Uh, You folks do know that you'll be standing on the stage. So just prepare your hearts for that. Even now, that'll be coming. 158 years ago, truth divided our nation. America was divided, the North and the South, on this, the truth. The Northern states proclaimed the truth that all men were born to live free. The Southern states sought to sustain the lie that slavery was necessary. These claims are mutually exclusive, and they came to a head. And the question for our nation at that time was this. If we're going to be the United States of America at all, will we live by truth or will we live by lies? How sincerely do we hold as a country the self-evident truths that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 158 years ago today, On September 19th, the Union Army met the Confederate Army at the Battle of Chickamauga Creek, September 19th, 1863. 120,000 men engaged in battle for control of the nearby railroad center in Chattanooga, Tennessee. 30% of the 120,000 died on that day. 16,000 Union soldiers, 18,000 Confederate soldiers on one day. The ultimate death toll to secure a nation in truth was over 700,000 men in four years. It's a little worse than COVID, I think. Was that necessary? For truth, was that necessary? Why not live and let live? You guys do what you want to do over there, and we'll do what we want to do over here. Why not just... Like the bumper sticker says, coexist. Can't we all just get along? Why remain united if it came with such a costly price tag, the precious treasure of the blood and sacrifice of young men? What is the value of truth? How essential is truth for membership in a union? How essential is truth for membership in a union? You've turned to Zechariah 8. I want to look at verses 11 through 17, where God is issuing a promise through the prophet Zechariah to his nation, Israel, on how they will be united with him. Here's how they'll be united. Here's the promise that he gives to them. God will bring peace for a remnant of his people, Israel. That's the promise where he most certainly brought destruction and discipline to this wicked and sinful nation, so now, at this time, he purposed good and salvation and blessing for this nation. And yet God's goodness, his salvation, his blessing, they don't come without this. Expectations of behavior. Yes, it is the case that God is your creator, and it is right and good for him to have expectations of your behavior, you creature. Human responsibility is part of God's sovereign plan. Did you think about that? Do you know that? 
human responsibility is part of God's sovereign plan. And as such, we receive commands. Let's read the text from Zechariah 8, verses 11 through 17, and see God's priority for truth that his nation would know great unity. God has a priority for truth. And it would be such that the nation would know it and have great unity. The Lord says to the prophet Zechariah, but now I will treat, sorry, but now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce and the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. It will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I purposed to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented. So I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And do not love perjury. For all these are are what I hate, declares the Lord. Well, you saw it there in chapter 8, verse 16. Unity requires what? Truth. Unity requires truth. Unity among the remnant of God's people, which he said he will restore, requires them telling truth with one another. This is command number one if you're going to have unity in a nation. Now turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 25 through 32, where we've been studying. And we're going to continue this study as we look at the commands that are coming to us in the text today. It's here in the text of 4, 25 to 32, where Paul most certainly had Zechariah's prophecy and the Lord's instruction on his mind. As you will see in the text, Paul quotes the Lord's command in Zechariah eight sixteen exactly as he seeks to establish the path of purity the believers must follow that we might build up the body of Christ. Chapter 4, verses 17 through 32 are verses that speak about the purity that is required in the church of Jesus Christ. For purity, we must be found ending our Gentile ways in verses 17 through 19. We must be found embracing our Savior's ways in verses 20 to 24. And we must be found executing our purity commands in verses 25 through 32. You might like that I've chosen a different word than executing. I think it's appropriate as we read from Numbers 25, as we think about the way that people sacrifice to keep God's commands and focus on truth. And so the word for us today is we will be executing our purity commands. That's what we need to focus on today in the text. Commands are the flow of the text in Ephesians 4, 25-32. Paul comes swinging at you in the text today with imperatives, not indicatives. Indicatives are statements of fact. Imperatives are commands. Commands where he's looking at you. And you, he's talking to you very personally. Listen to the commands. You need to know them. You need to know the commands of Jesus Christ through his Apostle Paul. There are over 11 commands in the text which are paired off into principles of Christian conduct. Ordered by Paul for purity in the church. He's ordering us to these. You see them in the text in the following pattern. There's a negative command. There's a positive command, and then a reason for those commands. 
There's one reversal or inversion of that order in verse 26. This is a method that Paul has. A method of exhortation of believers to get our attention, to stir us on to purity in the church. As we see in the text, Paul presses for purity in the church in five principles of Christian conduct which give us work, guide our mouths, and guard our hearts. And that's where we're going for this morning. I'll repeat that so that you know directly where we're headed in this text. Paul presses for purity in the church, commanding five principles of Christian conduct which give us work, guide our mouths, and guard our hearts. What five principles of Christian conduct give us work, guide our mouths, and guard our hearts? Number one, truthful speech. Number two, righteous anger. Number three, diligent labor. Number four, graceful mouths. And number five, kind hearts. I'll go through the list again, but I want you to understand this is a Christian Conduct 101 class. This is, this is freshman level stuff. This is the basics. Get in and know these are required of you. I'll go through the list again. Truthful speech is number one. Righteous anger is number two. Diligent labor, graceful mouths, number four, kind hearts, number five. This will serve as our outline for today and even for a couple of weeks. Today, we'll have time to tackle Christian conduct principles numbers one and two. And for now, let's read the whole text and consider Paul's urgency in offering these five principles of Christian conduct, which guide our path to purity that we, brothers and sisters, you and I, you, And I might be found building the body of Christ in unity and purity. Paul says in the text in verse 25, he says, Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, you speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather... He must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Last week, I introduced you to Dr. Richard Gans, who received the forgiveness of God. Richard Gans is a trained, at, at this time, he was a trained atheist, psychotherapist, Jew in New York. You'll remember his story. He was saved in a European vacation after he had got a job as a psychologist in a mental hospital. And it was there on this vacation that he came across a Christian ministry called Labrie. They happened to have a room for him and his wife. They stayed there, and a Christian man came and read to him from Isaiah chapter 53. Sharing Christ with this man, Richard the Jew, the atheist, the psychologist, Richard was saved. He was saved because truth had been offered to him, where he had lived a life of lies. Truth was offered to him. And the Lord sent the Holy Spirit so that he might understand truth. Dr. Gans went on to become a pastor in Ontario, Canada, and pastored for over 30 years. But he never forgot about the time that he had at Labrie in the Netherlands. 
and the profound counseling ministry that they had there at this Christian ministry. In his book called Psychobabble, The Failure of Modern Psychology and the Biblical Alternative, Dr. Gans tells the story of a man named Ted who arrived at Labrie shortly after he did. Ted's appearance was strikingly awful. A ghastly appearance with deep, open wounds on his head from a recent suicide failure. Several years of his life, for, for several years of his life, I should say, Ted made his way through the mental hospitals in the United States of America, but never found hope or change. Severe abuse had marked his childhood, and now he no longer had family. He was uneducated, unskilled, unloved, hopeless, and on the other side of the world. Dr. Gans recalls that the Labrie workers asked him, Dr. Gans, the psychologist, to speak to Ted. After all, he was a well-trained psychologist. Certainly, he had something that he could offer to Ted. Dr. Gans says, after talking to Ted and learning more about the misery of his squandered and wasted life, he says, quote, I could only offer, I could only affirm that his was a hopeless situation. And when the workers at Labrie asked me what I would do or suggest, I could offer nothing. Hmm. Continually, human psychology had failed Ted. And where the psychological community had nothing for Ted and basically had given up on him, the workers at Labrie didn't give up, but rather offered Ted truth. What truth did they offer him, brothers and sisters? They offered him this truth. Jesus Christ saves. That's the truth they offered him. Dr. Gans was amazed at the care of Ted that Ted received from these folks. He says they, didn't, they did not try to change his view of himself. No. They only attempted to demonstrate that his life was not hopeless because Christ is a Savior who could help him by making him into, into a new person. Wow. Dr. Gans says, before I left, Ted was a new person. Following his conversion to Christ, I hardly recognized him. The bloodied wounds were still there, but his hair was now neatly combed over, covering those wounds. His body was clean. He was in his right mind. He was wearing a necktie. That's a joke. <laughs> he had goals and directions in life. Christ had accomplished this for him and through him. He was saved. How? Because Labrie's community of counselors spoke truth with Ted. The truth of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to point number one in your notes. The first principle of Christian conduct that Paul commands us in the text is to truthful speech. Speak truth. This first of five principles of Christian conduct is truthful speech. Number one in your notes, truthful speech from verse 4, 25 of, of Ephesians. You know this. Truth is powerful. What else would you say about truth? Truth is satisfying. Truth is unifying. Truth is purifying. And truth is necessary for salvation, for unification, and for purification. Truth is the object of the mind renewal in chapter 4, verse 23. Truth is required that we might build up the body of Christ, because Christ himself is truth. Which is why, just like God did in Zechariah 8, verse 16, Paul is going to make truthful speech his Commandment number one in Ephesians 4.25. He says, therefore, 
Laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You see here in the text the negative command, you see the positive command, and you see the reason for the commands, and we will look to discuss each of these in just a moment, all these three aspects of Paul's first principle of Christian conduct, truthful speech. But before we do, we need to consider this first. What gives Paul the nerve, the ability, and the authority to command any one of you to do anything? What gives him the authority? Why does this text have command over your life? And maybe you're asking that as we've read the text and you're wondering, well, why am I sitting here listening to this command of Paul from Ephesians 4.25? Where does he get the authority? What makes this pastor think that he has authority to preach this message over my life? Maybe you think you're the authority. Well, let's look at this. Let's try to figure out where, where does this authority of Paul come from? It comes from this word here in the text, this first word. What's the first word? Therefore. And so you should ask the question in regard to authority. Well, what is the therefore, therefore? Why, why do you get the authority to say all this other stuff and make all these commands of me? It's a good question. Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians 1. In therefore, Paul is saying, I know salvation. I know it. I was taught salvation. Jesus Christ personally taught me salvation. He taught me what it's all about. I know you, Christian. I know what happened to you in your salvation. I know how God saves. And for three chapters, Paul has proved the sovereignty of God in salvation. He proved what he learned from Christ. And why? Why is God sovereign over salvation? Because your life, your existence, the existence of the church, the person of Christ, his death on the cross, it all has relevance in this. It is all for one reason. And what's the reason all of life is happening? Why are every one of us in this room breathing and respirating oxygen into this room? Why? Why do you have breath in your lungs? What's the purpose of your life? The glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. For you to understand Paul's commands, you have to desire to do the glory of God. Do you desire to do the glory of God? To do the glory of God, to have the desire, God has had to have given you something. You have had to receive something in this life. What did you receive? Election, adoption, redemption, salvation. What's it spell? Ears. Election, adoption, redemption, salvation. God has to give you ears to hear him. It's right here in the text. I'm not trying to lie to you. It's, it's right here on the page of Scripture. Can I just explain it to you the way that Paul does? Chapter 1, verse 4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, God predestined us for adoption as sons. Verse 7, in Christ, we have redemption in his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, because we are inherently born wicked and sinful. Verse 13 tells us that in Christ, at salvation, we were sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. This is a Trinitarian act that God, the Father, the Son, and Spirit have done on us. And it had to be this way, because chapter 2, verse 1 tells us why it could never be a different way. We were totally dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 4, though, verse 4, but God made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. Why? Verse 10 of chapter 2, God prepared good works from beforehand that you should walk in them. Those good works lead to you being, verse 22 of chapter 2, stacked up by Christ together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And if you don't know what that text is saying, let me tell you this. 
That text, chapter 2, verse 22, is this gathering, the church. It's this gathering, the church, in verse 22. And then why? What's the point of all of this? Chapter 3, verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And then verse 21, the end of the prayer, the doxology. Paul says, now to him, now to the Father, now to him, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. Therefore, brothers and sisters, chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, walk worthy of this calling that has been placed on your life. It's been placed on you by God. It's an eternal calling. It's an eternal life calling. It's a calling into Christ. Chapter 4, verse 3, diligently you pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in a local church. And verses 1 through 16, why? It's all about unity. And verses 17 through 32 says, you know, if this church is going to have unity, you know what it needs next? You know what you need to understand after unity? Verses 17 through 32, you need to understand purity. You need to understand purity. And for the purpose of purity in the church, Paul must command all believers this way in chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside all falsehood. There's a start for us. Laying aside all falsehood. The word here in Greek is apotithemi. It means laying aside. We talked about it before at verse 22 of chapter 4 when we studied that. This is put off. Lay aside. Put off. Cast off. Throw off like a wet, rain-soaked jacket all manner of falsehood. I remember throwing off rain-soaked jackets. I throw newspapers in Spokane for a number of years in my youth. And many days, absolutely soaked to the core. This is, this is our sinful nature. We are supposed to throw off our sinful nature. Throw off lies. Throw off falsehood like a wet jacket. Falsehood here in the Greek is the Greek word pseudos, which means lies and deception. Harold Honer says, in all contexts, this word pseudos is used as the antithesis, the exact opposite of truth. Throw them off. Every thought and every word that does not conform to truth must be discarded. It must be cast far, far away from us. And the reason for this is very clear. Turn in your Bibles to John 8. The reason to cast off sin and lies and falsehood and deception is this. If you are saved, you are a child of God. If you understand Christ, you are a child of God. If you love repentance, if you love confession, if you love forgiveness, you are a child of God. The spirit of truth lives in you. That's what Jesus said in John 14, 17 that would happen to the disciples. The spirit of God would live in you. And just like Ted at the Christian ministry, Labrie, just as he was saved and was made a new creature... So too, we don't need to persist in the lies of our old ways. Rather, we must cast off all falsehood. The Apostle John writes in his epistle, 1 John 2.21, saying, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth. I have written to you because you do know the truth. Because no lie is of the truth. In fact, he says truth is how we, as brothers and sisters, love one another. As believers in Christ in the church, he says in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in, you know it, in deed and in truth. You're in John chapter 8, which is very informative when it comes to lies, deception, and falsehood. Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths right about this time, September, October. 
He's been directed about, he's been direct in speaking to the crowds about who he is. You see it in the text in verse 12, saying to the crowd in verse 12 of chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He's getting different responses to this message, as you could probably imagine. What, what kind of responses would you anticipate that he's getting? He's getting haters and he's getting believers. Look at verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And so he instructs them. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, verse 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. But look at Jesus' exchange with the hard-hearted haters, the Pharisees, in verse 41. By verse 41, Jesus' discussion with them has devolved into a low and kind of desperate place. This has become a who's your daddy conversation. And Jesus knows exactly who their daddy is. And he tells them in verse 41, you are doing the deeds of your daddy. You're doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born in fornication like you were. We have one father, that is God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come of my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Why do you not understand what I am saying? Oh, oh, let me tell you why. I know why. That was a setup question. Let me tell you why you don't understand what I'm saying. It is because... You cannot hear my words. You cannot hear my words. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Brothers and sisters, who is the owner of falsehood, lies, and deception? None other than our arch nemesis, Satan. We are born sinful because of this one, Satan. He tempted us. He offered something to Eve. He offered lies about the Word of God. And she listened. You know what? You would have listened too. There's a temptation that we have. We're made in the image and likeness of God. It is our desire to pursue our own glory, to build our own kingdom, to have our own righteousness established. That's what she tried to do. That's the likeness of God in which we were built. You've got to give that up. If you're going to have a relationship with God in heaven forever, you have to recognize you're in His world. It's all about His glory. Self dies. Self dies. Christ is everything. And that, that makes sense of the sinfulness in which you live. So here's Satan. He's our... Arch nemesis, our ultimate tempter. And you know what's really sobering about this text is that you are either, in this life, you are either a child of God living in the truth, sharing, speaking, and exchanging truth in the local church. You are either that, or you are a child of Satan, and you traffic only in lies. How sobering is that reality? How sobering is the following reality as well that goes right along with it? Do you recognize the reality that everyone sitting in this room and everyone who's ever been born on the face of this earth were all born children of Satan. Do you get that? Does that make sense? And yet in the grace of God, 
We have been born again. We have been born again. Redeemed out of Satan's slave pit of sin. And you know what? As a, as a response or as a result of being redeemed, we are those who know the truth. Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians 4. As a result of salvation and being made children of God by way of adoption. The beauty of adoption. When we hear Paul's command, it makes perfect sense to us. Cast off the falsehood of your old ways. John MacArthur would remind us this as well in regard to our falsehood. Falsehood and lies and deception includes this. It, it includes our exaggerations. It includes cheating, false or foolish promises, betrayal of confidences, flattery, even making of excuses. Our best practice as children of God is obedience to Paul's positive command, which you see in the text in 425, where he says, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Obedience to this command. Speak truth, each one of you to his neighbor. This command to speak truth, it is so necessary for us because we still abide in this sinful flesh that wants to do sinful, wicked things while we live on this sinful, wicked world. So necessary and so straightforward. Let me tell you how straightforward it is. The Greek word here is laleo. That's the verb. Three times it's used in Ephesians by Paul, but 289 times in the New Testament. Aletheia is the word for truth. It's used six times in Ephesians and 109 times in the New Testament. These are known words. These are not hapax legomena. These are not one-time, one-instance-use words. There's nothing fancy here. These are normal, solid Biblical words, and he's just offering to us. Furthermore, he's offering to us a direct quote, as we saw from Zechariah 8, verse 16. The aletheia here is the same aletheia that is used in John 14, 6, which you know well, where Jesus uses it of himself when he says, I am the way, and the aletheia, the truth, and the life. It's the same aletheia that Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 17, when he prayed, sanctify them in the aletheia. Your word is the aletheia. Your word is the truth. Sanctify them in it. He knows that we need this. The saints, the elect of God, we love truth. Christ is the truth. Scripture is truth. We know both Scripture and Christ because we have the spirit of truth living in us who allows us to understand all truth. As a result, giving and receiving truth is never a burden. But in this fellowship, in this context, it is only ever our greatest blessing. What might be at issue for you in this text is the word neighbor. Maybe the word neighbor is at issue for you in this text. Who is your neighbor? The Greek word plasion. This was the issue. For the Pharisee, who was a lawyer as well, in Luke 10.25, Jesus had to clarify for this lawyer the understanding of Leviticus 19.18 by giving him the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that parable? Remember what it says about neighbor? It gives us a very distinct understanding of neighbor, doesn't it? And as a result, Christians understand two kinds of neighbors. First, we understand that every person we encounter in this world is our neighbor. What's the second understanding of neighbor, brother and sister? What's the second understanding? The second understanding is this. Our brothers and sisters in the church are our immediate neighbors. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 says this to you. So, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. 
and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the context of Ephesians 4.25. Speak truth to your brothers and sisters in the church. You know, this could never mean, ever, this could never be taken out of context and mean lie to the world. It could never mean that. But it does heighten the relationship that you have with the people that you sit next to in this church. And there's not, it's not without reason that that's the case. There are very much reasons for that to be the case. There is a special goodness, what you might call a first fruits goodness, that we are to give to the church family. Why? Well, you see it there in the text in verse 25 as well. After the negative command, then there's the positive command. And now Paul gives the reason. For we are members of one another. Verse 25. Members is the Greek word melos, which can refer to a limb or another part of a body. And we love this imagery because it helps us to understand our relationship to each other and to Christ, who is the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Harold Honer makes this observation. I find it to be very helpful. I'm going to give you his, his quote here. It's a little bit longer. Let me give this quote to you. Harold Honer says this. <clears throat> it is interesting to observe that this word melos is never used of members of an organization, but always of members of an organism. In other words, members of an organization may not necessarily have a relationship to, the, to other members, but members of an organism demand a close-knit relationship to the other members. They are accountable to one another. Deception by one member not only harms that member, but the whole body suffers as well, and in the end, self-destruction occurs to that organism. You know, it is the case that several of the brothers here at Community Bible Church work in large organizations. That's a nice way of saying there's a lot of you who are banksters, okay? <laughs> what do you think, brothers? What do you think? Are you a melos, a member, at work in the same way that you are a melos in the church? Deception in an organization is probably happening all the time, maybe even in the bank in which you work. Deception doesn't work at all in the organism called the church of Jesus Christ. John Christostom says this. He says, if the eye sees a serpent, does it lie to the foot? Or if the nose smells a drug, will it lie to the mouth? Or if the tongue tastes something bitter, will it lie to the stomach? In the body of Christ... The members speak truth with one another. Truth is always the best policy. Dr. Gans, Dr. Richard Gans was blessed to counsel a young man named Ralph who desperately needed truth. Ralph's family wanted him to check into a local psychiatric hospital. But Ralph confessed Jesus as Lord. And so he heard about Dr. Gans and went to see Dr. Richard Gans instead. Not only did Ralph confess Jesus Christ as Lord, but Ralph was confessing a bunch of other crazy stuff too. Listen, he had these things to say in his counseling session with Dr. Gans. He said, God is telling me that a certain person will die. God is telling me that I must fast until this person is dead. God is telling me that I might need to be the one to end this person's life. Whoa, yikes. Whew. That's a little heated conversation there, isn't it? That's, that's interesting. What a counseling conversation. 
This is the stuff that comes up in counseling. This is the kind of stuff that gets spun up in people's minds. Your mind. Crazy stuff. Wicked stuff. Sinful stuff. Yikes, right? <laughs> like, whoa! Was God actually telling these things to Ralph? You know the answer to that question. <laughs> no, Ralph! Stop listening to yourself. No. And it was Dr. Gann's joy. It was his joy to believe Ralph. That Ralph was, in fact, a Christian. But then to challenge Ralph on what is truth. To challenge him. Especially when it came to Ralph's claims of what God was saying. It turns out Ralph was a new Christian. It turns out that salvation happened right after a really messy relationship breakup. It turns out that the old girlfriend had found a new boyfriend and Ralph was still bitter and angry. He was not discipled by anyone at his church and at the same time he desperately needed to be discipled and to be taught truth. Dr. Gans saved Ralph from a trip to the psych ward where his parents would have liked to have seen him go. He saved him from all the labels of psychology, all the medications of psychology, all the pain of the lack of truth that you receive in psychology, and the hopelessness of the path down the road of human psychology. Instead, heading Ralph down the path of purity in Christ, speaking truth to Ralph, which was well-received, even addressing and correcting Ralph's bitterness and his anger. Which brings us to point number two in your notes. The second principle of Christian conduct is righteous anger. Righteous anger in verses 26 to 27. Ralph's anger over a broken relationship was this. It was absolutely unrighteous. He wasn't angry because God's law had been violated. His anger did not match the anger of Phineas in Numbers 25. His anger was because he didn't get what he wanted. And no one was helping him to build his own kingdom on his terms. And he was going to take matters into his own hands. And it shouldn't surprise us that Ralph got on a downward spiral of depravity and got so far that his parents recommended a stay in a psych hospital. And I would hope that in, in my saying that to you, that you understand that I believe that you don't need to send your kids to a psych hospital. I genuinely believe that. I genuinely believe that there are enough resources, far better resources, infinitely better resources, in Scripture, in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, and in the church, than all the psych hospitals over all the earth of all time, with all of their psychologists and psychiatrists combined, we have far better, infinitely better resources in the book that you hold in your hands. James chapter 1 verse 20 is where the Bible teaches us about anger. James 1.20 says, The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And you know what? That's exactly what Ralph needed to hear. And he needed to have it explained to him. You know, somebody here sitting here right now, is recognizing the dilemma. 
the conundrum, the enigma that exists in the James 1.20 passage and the passage that I'm about to read to you. Someone can see that there's a disconnect. They're sliding right by each other. Someone is going to ask the question, if James 1.20 about the anger of man is right, then how can Paul command us to be angry in Ephesians 4.26? Can it truly be the case that Paul wants us to be angry? And, and why does he seem to contradict himself? In verse 26, he says, be angry. And in verse 31, he says, put off anger. Just five verses later. How then, someone would ask, how is anger Christian conduct? That's a great question. Well, read the text with me and let's try to understand Paul's command. Where he says in chapter 4, verse 26, you, Christian, be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. What makes anger okay? What makes anger commendable, even commandable in the text? Here's what makes it commandable. Anger is the righteousness of God. Anger is the righteousness of God. James Montgomery Boyce says, anger itself is not sin. It is not sin. More than that, God's anger is just one aspect of the whole of His perfect character, of His essence, of His nature. If you understand holiness, you should understand righteousness. If you understand righteousness, you should understand justice. If you understand justice, you should understand wrath. And if you understand wrath, you should understand anger. The psalmist is right in declaring in Psalm 145, verse 17, Listen, the Lord is righteous in all of His ways and kind in all of His deeds. How many foolish Christians come across the Lord's anger in the Old Testament and get angry themselves because they don't want to worship a God who gets angry and wrathful and jealous. You know what? I praise God that the God of the Bible is angry and wrathful and jealous. When I read to you earlier Numbers 25, verse 3, like the men and I did yesterday, which says this, So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. I rejoice in knowing that the God of the universe, the one who made me, he hates idolaters and he hates rebels. I rejoice in that fact. When I read Judges chapter 2, verse 14, I rejoice that God's anger is not idle but swift to punish when he says, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hand of the plunderers who plundered them. And he, God, sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. I rejoice at the anger of God when he looks down on me and sees my sinful heart and my sinful ways and he seeks to go about creating circumstances and events in my life that crush me and cause the sin to be removed from me. I love it when my God disciplines me in his anger. Anger is not a problem at all. Because anger is perfectly aligned with the righteousness of God. But not all anger is aligned with the righteousness of God, is it? How about a couple illustrations? Anger not aligned with the righteousness of God. There was a surreal moment that happened during the Cold War when Russian Premier, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, 
visited Los Angeles as part of an extended summit meeting with President Eisenhower. He was taken on a tour of Hollywood on this day, September 19, 1959. As they toured Hollywood, he found out from the tour guide that the tour extension that was supposed to go down to Disneyland had been canceled for security concerns, and the man threw a raging fit. He was furious. He was angry. I don't get to go to Disneyland, said the Russian premier. The next day, in his anger, he left town. In 1995, the year that I graduated from high school, a 35,000-word manifesto of anger was published in the New York Times and Washington Post. The 35,000-word manifesto was the angry ramblings of a murderer known as the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, which led to his capture and ultimate conviction. Anger. Unrighteous anger. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 4. Psalm 4. Certainly there are things in this life to be angry about. Going to Disneyland should not be on the top of that list. <laughs> or not going to Disneyland. Nor does righteous anger lead a man to 17 years worth of making pipe bombs to deliver by mail to random people. This does not afford righteous anger. It is entirely unrighteous anger. What kinds of things are worthy of our anger? Anything in this world which violates God's desires, God's design, and God's righteousness. You know this list. You could come up with your own and we could share a list. Maybe you need to share a list of unrighteousness or things worthy of anger over lunch today. Abortion, homosexuality, drunkenness, all manner of sexual immorality, transgenderism. These are social issues which God's righteousness governs and for which he is extremely angry. But what about inside the church? What about this idea of Women preachers, gay preachers, transgender preacher. You talk about debasing the word preacher. Slap one of those prefixes in front of it. Was God pleased or angered when Gonzaga University hosted Pastor Shannon, uh, sorry, Pastor Jan Shannon, an openly gay pastor from Cheney United Methodist Church in 2018 as she addressed the student body of Gonzaga University with a message titled, this is no joke, here's the message title, Sexuality and Faith. She's gay, she's pastor, she's a unicorn. Were you there for that one? Did you get to see that? Righteousness of God or unrighteousness of God? Unquestionably, in this, God was angered. And maybe a bigger question for us. Should we be angered as well? Should this bother us? Should this get under our Christian skin? You're in Psalm 4. Look at verse 4 with me. This is a psalm of David. What does David say in Psalm 4, verse 4? The text in my Bible says, Tremble and do not sin. That's wrong. If you have an NIV or an NASB, that's the wrong translation. Who's got an ESV? What does the ESV say? What does it say? It says, Be angry. That's the right translation. The word here in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, is orgizo. It's the same verb as Ephesians 4.26, which means you be angry, be enraged, express strong displeasure and hostility. But don't go get prideful, you ESV holders. <laughs> but I would encourage you, scratch out tremble, if that's what appears in your Bible. 
and write in, be angry. That's the word there. That's the translation. And David says, be angry and do not sin. It's a direct match to the text that we're working in today. He says, meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still, say la. Verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Oh, there it is. There it is. You, Christian, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Doesn't that just make your mind go right back to Numbers 25? Can you imagine what it would be like to pick up a spear and run into a tent and shove it through a man and a woman because of the righteousness of God? Do you think that Phineas, who did that, do you think that he's any different, a human being, than you or I? This is the righteous anger. This is the righteous jealousy that we must have for God. Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians 4.26. Consider righteous anger with me for a second. Because I don't intend any of you to, you know, go out and buy a spear. Spears are not for sale in the foyer today. (laughs) I really want you to understand righteous anger, so we're going to keep talking about it for a second here. How would you ever know when to be filled with righteous anger? How would you ever know when to be filled with righteous anger? How would you know? How would, where was Phineas? Where was, where was Phineas? Where was he at? He was at the door of the tent of meeting. He had just heard from Moses. All the men have to be killed. All these people have to be killed. He was at the house of God. He was with the men of God. And what did the text say in Numbers 25? What did it say that they were doing? They were weeping. They were weeping. You, Christian, must know righteousness. And you will know righteousness when you are firmly equipped and familiarized with your Bible. And you will know righteousness when you are in deep communion and fellowship with God on your knees in prayer. That's where you will know righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what Paul expects of us. That we would have zeal for God and His righteousness to the extent that we know and express and execute righteous anger. How would you know when your anger is no longer righteous? How would you know when your anger, your righteous anger has turned to unrighteousness? This is a great and necessary question because Harold Honer says to us, unlike God, people have a tendency to allow anger to control them. So how do we keep from being controlled by unrighteous anger? Well, you see it in the text. You see the guidelines for anger right in the text? They're right there. Verse 26 and 27, be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. The positive command to be angry is three times bound. It's bound in action. It's bound in time and it's bound in place. Let's look at these. First, let's look at anger is action bound. Anger is action bound. In your righteous anger, you are commanded not to sin. And consider this for a moment with me, the examples that you've been given, because there's a big issue here. Phineas killed, murdered two people. The Union Army killed 18,000 Confederate troops in one day on September 19th. God endorsed the death of those who opposed his righteousness. 
There's a quote from E.K. Simpson. Listen to what this pastor said. E.K. Simpson said, The truest peacemaker may have to assume the role of a peacebreaker as a sacred obligation. Stick that in your hat. Hold on to that one. And yet, follow me, and yet, if you think nasty, hateful, sinful thoughts about Pastor Jan Shannon in your head all day long and into next week, your thoughts are just as sinful as all that you despise about her life. Warning to you, Christian. Warning. If you are going to know righteous anger, you'd better know sin as well. You'd better be very intimately familiar with God's definition of sin. Sin is the Greek word hamartia, which is a word that comes from classical Greek, and it means this. It means to miss the mark, as in throwing a spear at a target and missing the mark. Righteous anger is only of value when actions or with actions that never miss the mark. I've got to say that again to you so that you, you, you understand. Righteous anger is only of value with actions that never miss the mark. You've been warned. Second, anger is time-bound. Anger is time-bound. Deuteronomy 24.15 tells us that wages were due to be paid to the day laborers before the setting of the sun. The setting of the sun acts as a barrier for our anger. But not literally. This is a metaphorical boundary, a word picture boundary, you could say. Clint Arnold says this should not be interpreted in a literal sense, but needs to be understood as indicating that there is danger in allowing anger to continue beyond a reasonable limit. The words of Jesus Christ come to my mind when I think about this in Matthew chapter 6, where he's got a crowd gathered, the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, why are you worried? Don't worry. Do this. Verse 33 of chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things of life will be added to you. Verse 34, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough of its own trouble. Amen? Amen. The righteousness of God is concerned with how we handle the events of today. And the time boundary with anger requires reconciling the anger in your heart today. Note also, this is not a command for husbands and wives to be reconciled in their arguments before falling asleep. That would be presumptive and even prove fruitless and you wouldn't get any sleep because you'd be up till you know, you have to come to church the next day at 9 o'clock. The challenge is this though. The challenge is this. It is for your own heart and for your own mind that in a reasonable time have you addressed your anger. In a reasonable time have you addressed your anger. Harold Honer tells us it is essential to keep short accounts of anger to settle the problem before another day begins. Let's go to the third boundary. Anger is place-bound. Anger is place-bound. If we are to have righteous anger, then no place in our thoughts, words, or deeds can be given over to Satan. The Greek word for opportunity is the word tapon, which literally means place or location, but figuratively can mean opportunity. Truly righteous anger must be void of place or location for Satan. There's no space for him. Righteous anger must be 100% absent of his influence 
or his accusations against you will begin to fly because he will see and he will discern all of the places where you are a total hypocrite in your righteous anger. Satan is the diabolos. He is the slanderer, our great accuser and the father of lies as we read earlier. He's the father of lies and he's the father of sin. He'd be more than happy to have a place in your righteous anger that he might corrupt you and cause you to fall far into unrighteousness and hypocrisy. His influence in this world is real. It is the case that he is not bound at this time. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, You, Christian, be sober spirit and on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There's nothing more he'd love to do than to remove the witness of your zeal for God by helping your righteous anger become unrighteousness. As we consider righteous anger, I want you to think again with me on the examples of Phineas and the Civil War. And let me ask you this question. Do Christians today have a stomach for righteous anger? Whether the righteous anger that came from Phineas or the righteous anger that led to 700,000 men killed in battle over four years at the Civil War. Do, Do Christians today have enough knowledge of righteousness and sin to even have righteous anger? Where did you last truly see righteous anger? You know, I can tell you when I last had righteous anger boil up in my heart, in my mind. You know what it was? I'll tell you when it was. I remember exactly when it was. It was the week that led up to Resurrection Sunday 2020. Righteous anger boiled up in me, headed up to Resurrection Sunday 2020. John Stott is concerned for the church. He has this to say about Paul's command. Listen, he says this. The verse recognizes that there is such a thing as Christian anger and too few Christians either feel it or express it. John Stott, he says, I go further and say that there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not sympathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate sin too. Now, I've enjoyed reading Dr. Richard Gann's righteous anger towards psychology and psychiatry in his book, Psychobabble. In it, he questions Christians with this. He says, what has brought us to the place where Christians feel we cannot deal with our problems without the help of popular psychology? Do we realize how far from a truly biblical perspective of man we've wandered? He says, leaders of the psychiatric establishment refuse to recognize that Christ changes lives. The only basis by which pastors and psychologists should be able to talk or should should be talking about restoration or healing is in connection with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is not possible to understand or deal with man's nature apart from his relationship to God. And to that I say, Amen. Remember Ralph, who was a new Christian filled with anger and unrighteous thoughts about God? Dr. Gans says, in the hands of secular psychotherapists, Ralph would have been weaned from his fragile faith. Secular psychotherapy probably would have seen Ralph's faith in Christ as the problem. Worse still, had Ralph finished his therapy with these individuals, he would have seen man's work in his life not God's work in his life. Ralph's interest in God may very well have ended. God had elected Ralph from before the foundation of the world for eternal life. 
And that caused God to lead Ralph to Dr. Gans, who trained Ralph in the ways of Christ and showed him our need to execute righteousness. To execute our purity commands, just like you saw today. Ralph was trained in truthful speech and righteous anger for his own individual purification and good and for him to be found placed in a corporate body, the church, and grow in unity and purity, just like you are here today to learn those very same truths. And you have. You have. This is what we discussed this morning. What is your job? Execute. Execute. What must you take away from today's lesson? Let me run through some questions and then we'll go to our right hand of fellowship. The application is obvious, is it not? Speak truth and be angry, right? And the real question is this. Do you know why? Do you know why you would do that? Do you know what these commands mean and where they come from? What is the source of all speech and truth? Aren't these owned by God just like we are owned by God? Doesn't he own speech and truth? How does God speak? And how does he demand that we speak to each other? What about the other words in these purity commands? What does it mean to be a neighbor? What does it mean to be a member of one another? We're going to talk about that in just a second. What is the source of anger? Does anger come directly out of the righteousness of God? Should I be happy or mad about God's anger? Why does God get angry? Is God's anger ever wrong? Is God angry about the murder that happens in abortion? Was God angry at the deaths of the 16,000 Union soldiers on one day? What does this mean for my own anger? What does this mean for your anger? Does your anger miss the mark of righteousness? What is the source of sin? Who is this person, the devil? And, And how is he complicating the issues for me? And my compliance, my execution. Where did he come from and how do my actions make space for him in my life? What actions must I take to stop giving him opportunity? Your faithful execution of our purity commands depends not only on knowing the commands themselves, but even more importantly, knowing the righteousness of God behind the commands. Know the words. Know the righteousness of God. Know the reasons. And brothers and sisters... Execute our purity commands. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have all things in this world in the palm of your hand. That nothing's missing, that nothing's out of place, that in your sovereignty all things perfectly make sense. You have truly made us free will individuals made in your image and likeness. And as such, we receive the commands that we must obey. Help us to live lives that are obedient to the commands that you've given. Help us speak truth and help us to understand righteous anger, we pray. The Community Bible Church might grow in unity and purity and be built up for all the glory that we can possibly give you. Amen.